podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, These stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On the morning of June 25th, 1969, 26-year-old Joan Gave awoke to a balmy summer morning with highs in the 80s in Detroit, Michigan. She was just beginning her daily routine when she heard a knock at the front door. When she opened it, she saw her paperboy 15-year-old Carl Eugene Watts standing on her porch. Known as Coral, the boy was tall and strong, a gifted athlete. His physique was muscular and agile, unlike most gangly teenagers. Before Joan could utter a word, Coral punched her as hard as he could in the face and then proceeded to savagely beat her over the threshold of her home. When she finally managed to let out a horrified scream, Coral Watts turned around, got back on his bicycle, and proceeded to finish his paper route before returning home to his mother and stepfather's house. A few days later, police officers went to the Watts home to arrest the boy for assault. When they asked him why he attacked Joan Gave, Coral shrugged and said, I just felt like beating someone up. Coral's assault on Gabe and his eerie explanation of why he did it earned him his first stay in a psychiatric hospital. There would be many more that followed. Even at 15, doctors knew something was wrong with Coral Watts. After several weeks of examination at Detroit's Lafayette Mental Clinic, His physician concluded, Coral was, quote, a paranoid young man who was struggling for control of strong homicidal impulses. His behavior controls are faulty, and there is a high potential for violent acting out. This individual is considered dangerous, end quote. If only someone had heeded that warning. Dozens of women across the middle of North America, from Texas to Canada, might still be alive. This is the story of the Sunday Morning Slasher. Carl Eugene Watts was born on November 7, 1953, in Killian, Texas. His parents were young. Richard Watts was 21 when his son was born and Dorothy May was just 18. Just three days after Carl's birth, Richard Watts packed up the family and moved them to Colwood, West Virginia, a place where they would be surrounded by extended family. The couple welcomed Carl's sister, Sharon Yvonne, into the world almost exactly a year later, but things were apparently rocky. By 1955, 
Richard Watts had abandoned the family, and Dorothy May was left to fend for herself and their two children. The reason he left is still unknown, but it's likely that Carl never saw his biological father again. Forced to go where she could find work, Dorothy moved her two young children to Inkster, Michigan, a small city just west of Detroit, where she got a job as an art teacher in a local school. Dorothy spent most of her free time away from work traveling back to West Virginia to visit her mother with Carl and Sharon in tow. Carl repeatedly loved spending time with family in West Virginia. When Carl's cousins pronounced his name with a thick southern drawl, and it came out as Coral, and he adorned it so much that the name stuck. After that, Carl Watts told everyone his name was Coral. In 1961, when Coral was just seven years old, both he and his sister came down with meningitis. A bacterial infection, meningitis causes swelling in the brain and spinal cord. The condition can be life-threatening in young children, and in some cases can cause hearing loss, seizures, blindness, and lifelong learning and behavioral issues. Unfortunately for Carl, he also came down with polio at the same time he had meningitis. He suffered from high fevers and had to spend long periods in isolation. Instead of attending the third grade, he spent a year receiving numerous spinal taps and other painful treatments. Once a bright student, this event in his life changed his performance in school. He began receiving poor grades, had trouble concentrating, and suffered from memory loss. A year later, Coral's mother remarried. His stepfather had six children from a previous marriage and their home suddenly became very crowded. Dorothy and her new husband went on to have two more kids, which brought their brood to a total of 10. This didn't leave a lot of attention for young Coral, who, according to his sister Sharon, was a shy and unassuming kid. He didn't stand out at home, and so he was easily missed. One place where Coral Watts did stand out was in sports. He played football, baseball, and ran track. He was also an excellent boxer and won a Golden Gloves title, an esteemed accomplishment for an amateur fighter. As Coral grew into his teenage years, however, he became increasingly apathetic. Even though he lost his virginity at 14, this didn't inspire desire or lust for girls. On the contrary, he was starting to develop a severe hatred of women. To those around him, it was clear that Coral Watts lacked empathy. His mother said he would bully his sister until she cried. He had no interest in doing well in school either. And by the time he was 15, Coral was only reading at a fourth grade level. Perhaps the only redeeming quality about young Coral Watts was that he wasn't particularly violent towards anyone outside of sports. But that all changed on an early summer day in 1969 when he mercilessly beat Joan Gave 
for no reason other than he wanted to. The assault on Joan Gave apparently ignited something within Coral that he hadn't acted on before. Violence gave him power. He could easily overpower a woman with his physical stature, and this excited him. This event awakened a sleeping beast within him, and it was the beginning of a terrible, lifelong quest for bloodlust. Coral spent over four months in the Lafayette Mental Clinic. They released him on his 16th birthday with the recommendation that he received outpatient treatment to deal with his violent impulses, but Coral returned for treatment less than a dozen times. Years later, Coral would say his parents abused him during this period, that his mother hit him in the face often, and his stepfather drank too much and beat his children. Allegedly, everyone in the family denies this, and in spite of his allegations, Coral and his mother maintained a close relationship. Coral graduated from high school in 1973 and received a scholarship to play football for Lane College in Tennessee. Within three months, Coral sustained a career-ending injury and dropped out of school. He moved back in with his parents in Detroit for a time before getting a job as a mechanic for ENL Transport, a national trucking company. Before long, Coral was back at Lafayette Mental Clinic for another round of outpatient treatment. Not only had his earlier homicidal urges not retreated, but he also now fighting a daily battle against his impulses to beat up women. His willingness to deny these impulses became less and less with each passing day. By July 1974, Coral was growing wary with his future career prospects. So he enrolled in engineering classes at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Despite poor grades, Coral obtained a scholarship through the Martin Luther King Jr. Student Scholars Academy, a grant program enacted in 1969 to give black and minority students better access to higher education. His desire to perform well in school had not improved much from his high school years. He missed class often, and when he wasn't working his new job in the university cafeteria, Coral spent most of his time playing ping pong in the college recreation room. After only three months in college, Coral's interest turned violent. It's as if a switch had flipped inside his brain. He decided he was done denying his true self. And the only way for him to gain fulfillment was through crime and violence. In October of 1974, all hell broke loose. On October 11th, 1974, Western Michigan University police arrested Coral for stealing plywood from the campus. But at that time, they decided not to press charges. Then, a series of assaults happened in and around Kalamazoo campus. On October 25th, a young woman named Lenore Nizeki answered a knock at her door to find a well-built black man looking for someone named Charles. She told him no one by that name lived there, but that he should check the other apartments. Within minutes, there was another knock at her door. 
and the same man again asked for Charles. She asked him if he wanted to leave a note, and he said he did. So she undid her door chain and stepped away to grab something to write with. When she did, the man forced his way inside and tackled her to the ground. He wrapped his hands around her neck and strangled her until she fell unconscious. Thankfully, she didn't die. When she awoke, the man was gone, and Lenore called Kalamazoo police to report the assault. On the day before Halloween, police were called to the WMU campus apartment of Gloria Steele, a 19-year-old student. Steele lived in the apartment with her boyfriend and young child. It was her boyfriend who made the frantic call to the police. He found Steele's body in their bedroom, lying face up, dead from more than 30 stab wounds to her torso. The murder weapon, a wood carving tool called a skew chisel, was found still lodged in her spine. The medical examiner determined she had died from the damage done to her internal organs and that she had not been sexually assaulted. Police ruled out robbery as a motive because nothing was taken from her apartment. The only tip they had from witnesses in the apartment complex was a black man had been knocking on doors the day before looking for Charlie. Two weeks after Steele's murder, an apartment complex manager named Diane Williams answered the door to her residence and found a man asking for Charles. She offered to let him leave a message in case she heard from anyone with that name. But when she handed him a pen and paper to write it down, he forced his way into her apartment and tried to grab her. Williams fought him, and during the struggle, her phone started ringing. Williams managed to knock the receiver off the stand and screamed for help. On the other end of the line was her husband's secretary, who immediately called 911. The man fled, but he didn't get far. Williams ran to the window and saw him getting into a brown Pontiac Grand Prix. The police picked him up, orchestrated a lineup at the police station, and Williams was able to identify the man. The man was 21-year-old Coral Watts. Coral Watts was charged with assault and battery against Diane Williams and Lenore Nizaki. And soon after, police questioned him in connection with the murder of Gloria Steele. Watts admitted to assaulting more than 15 women, including Nizeki and Williams, but he denied having anything to do with Steele's murder. And now, for a quick break. My name is Andrew Dodge. I have spent the last 11 years getting to know some of America's most notorious criminals, such as serial killers, spree killers, mass murderers, domestic and foreign terrorists, and many more types of criminals. Unforbidden Truth will bring you exclusive interviews with convicted criminals, professionals in the mental health and law enforcement field, and much more. Subscribe to Unforbidden Truth on any podcast platform to join me on a one-of-a-kind true crime experience. Now, back to the show. Police obtained a search warrant for his car and found wood carving tools, but no forensic evidence tying him to the crime. 
As they pressed Coral for a confession, he lawyered up. To get him off the streets, police charged Watts with the theft of the WMU plywood from back in early October, and he was sentenced to either 45 days in jail or an extended stay at the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital. Coral opted for the hospital, and doctors diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. While inside, he tried to commit suicide by hanging himself with the cord of a laundry bag, but was quickly found by a nurse and cut down. From there, he was transferred to the Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Michigan in June of 1975. The CFP doctors determined Coral Watts felt good after beating up women and had zero remorse for what he had done to Diane Williams or to Lenore Nizaki. He was determined to be competent to stand trial and served one year in jail after pleading no contest to the Kalamazoo assaults. When he left jail in August of 1976, he moved back into his parents' home in Inkster, Michigan. There, he started a relationship with a childhood friend named Dolores Howard. The pair had a child named Nikisha and stayed together until 1979 when Coral left without explanation. By August of that year, he had married a woman named Valerie Goodwill, and the two moved into an apartment in Detroit. The marriage lasted less than a year. Valerie got fed up with Coral's bizarre behavior very quickly. Coral had violent nightmares and would wake up fighting in his sleep. He cut up their house plants with scissors and melted candles to the coffee table. He left garbage all over the floor. After they had sex, Coral would get up and leave without a word, and he'd often stay gone for hours. What was he doing during these long absences? Well, I should point out that during the time that Watts was living in Detroit, women were getting attacked left and right. Between June and October of 1978, Five separate women reported waking up in their bedrooms to find a man standing over them with his hands on their bodies. No one could identify Watts specifically, but each one described their attacker as a well-built black man. On September 21st of 1979, police found the dead body of 32-year-old Malik Haddad in Detroit Park. She had been decapitated, and her head has never been found. On October 8, 1979, the body of a Detroit Metro Airport employee named Peggy Pochmara was found in the front yard of her boyfriend's home. She had been strangled to death, but police found no evidence of sexual assault, and all of her possessions were intact. On October 31, 1979, Janine Klein, a former food reporter for the Detroit News, was stabbed 13 times outside of her home northeast of Detroit. Her murdered corpse was not discovered for several hours because people passing the yard thought she was a Halloween decoration. Nothing was missing from her home and she hadn't been sexually assaulted. And the list goes on and on and on. 
29-year-old mother of two, Don Jerome. 23-year-old college student, Hansel Conniff. 26-year-old Denise Dunmore. 27-year-old Linda Montero. All of these women were strangled or stabbed to death. Detroit saw over 18 murders of young women with similar MOs from mid-1979 to late-1980. At the time, police believed they had two or more active serial killers in the area, and public pressure left Detroit PD desperate to make arrests. By the end of 1980, police had arrested two men in connection to the string of murders, and neither of them was Coral Watts. Their names were Donald Murphy and David Payton. On December 15, 1980, a career criminal named Donald Murphy was taken into police custody after attempting to murder a woman walking down the street in the Oak Park neighborhood of Detroit. He pulled up beside her and offered her a ride. At first, the woman declined, but Murphy told the woman he was a police officer, so she got in the car. Within minutes, Murphy pulled a knife on her and told her to undress. The woman fought him, and he choked her unconscious using a tie from her shirt. After he raped her, he left her for dead on the street. But the woman managed to crawl to a neighboring house and get help. She gave the police a description of her attacker and his car, and police arrested Donald Murphy. Reportedly, after he was charged with sexual assault, he had a long phone conversation with his mother before proceeding to confess to six of the unsolved Detroit murders. A search of his home and vehicle revealed physical evidence tying Murphy to two of the slangs, including a blood-stained pickaxe handle linked to several of the murders. There was only one problem. Police had already charged 23-year-old David Payton with some of those murders. David Payton coached girls basketball at Highland Park High School, located in the heart of Detroit. Unfortunately, he got collared for soliciting sex from an undercover cop posing as a sex worker in June of 1979, giving him a criminal record that would haunt him. In November of 1980, a woman filed a complaint with police that Peyton had threatened to beat her with a tire iron and slash her face if she didn't give him oral sex. Given his previous brush with the law, police arrested him, and after a 56-hour interrogation during which he was denied access to his lawyer, Peyton confessed to four unsolved murders of women from late 1979 and early 1980. Even after Donald Murphy confessed and police found physical evidence to support what he said, the Detroit DA continued to prosecute Peyton until police officially cleared him of all involvement. Two years later, David Peyton sued the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office and the Detroit Highland Park Police Department 
for liable malicious prosecution and numerous civil rights violations. He ended up winning $8 million in damages, though the ordeal virtually ruined his life. Two of the women suspected of being either Murphy or Peyton victims in 1980 included Linda Montero or Hansel Conoff. However, the MO in these two killings was void of evidence of sexual assault, which was present in all of the Murphy victims. After Peyton was cleared and Murphy was sentenced to 60 years in prison for his crimes, Detroit police were left with 10 plus victims and no witnesses or physical evidence tying anyone to the remaining unsolved murders. The motive in these crimes was unclear. It appeared the reason these women had been killed was purely for the act of killing itself. December 1st, 1979, Helen Dutcher, 36, was murdered outside of a dry cleaner's store. She was brutally stabbed 13 times and left for dead on the pavement beside a car. This time, there was a witness to the killing. The murder had happened in full view of an apartment complex. And a man named Joseph Foy gave police a detailed description of the perpetrator. The sketch produced and circulated bore a striking resemblance of Coral Watts. Thanks to an arrest for disorderly prowling around a woman's home on October 8th, Coral Watts was known to the police at this time. Unfortunately, with the exception of Foy's eyewitness account, which wasn't used to arrest Watts at that time, police had zero evidence connecting him to the Detroit murders. 50 miles west of Detroit, police in Ann Arbor, Michigan, began investigating several seemingly random murders in April of 1980. 17-year-old Shirley Small was attacked around 4 a.m. on April 20th after leaving a skating rink. She was minutes from her family's home. Someone had stabbed her in the chest and slashed her face repeatedly. She died from a puncture wound to her heart. On July 13th, 26-year-old restaurant manager Glenda Richmond was found stabbed to death outside of her apartment complex at 5.15 in the morning. She had been stabbed 28 times in the chest with a screwdriver and left sprawled out less than 30 feet from her apartment door. When Ann Arbor police detective Paul Bunton arrived at the scene of the slaying murder of Rebecca Huff in September, he knew the three cases were related. Huff, a 30-year-old University of Michigan grad student, was stabbed in the chest over 50 times right outside her apartment complex. Nothing was missing from her purse, and the contents of her book bag were strewn about around her body. She also had not been sexually assaulted. The MO of these murders were basically identical. Three brutal stabbing murders within a hundred feet of the victim's homes, and the victims had not been raped or robbed. In all three cases, no one saw a thing. Because the slayings had all occurred early on Sunday mornings, the Ann Arbor Press nicknamed the murderer the Sunday Morning Slasher. 
A few months after Rebecca Huff's murder, Jim Arthurus, a Detroit police officer, read about the Ann Arbor killings and connected the M.O. to the 1974 Gloria Steele murder. Coral Watts was still the prime suspect in that case. He called the Ann Arbor police and gave them Watts' name, and they quickly realized Watts was their prime suspect, but no one could put Watts in Ann Arbor during the murders. That is, until November. On November 15, 1980, Ann Arbor detective Don Terry was patrolling the streets when he saw a woman walking quickly down the street. She kept looking over her shoulder as if someone was following her. Then Detective Terry noticed a tan Pontiac Grand Prix trailing her. He followed them down the street and it became clear that the Pontiac was stalking the woman. Detective Terry radioed dispatch and asked them to run the vehicle plates. They came back registered to Coral Eugene Watts. When the woman turned to go down the other side of the street, Watts had to make an illegal turn to keep going after her, and Terry took the opportunity to pull him over. Detective Paul Bunton heard the call over the radio and raced to the scene and took Watts in for questioning. They got a search warrant for Watts' car and found wood carving tools that were consistent with the wounds on the victims. But again, there was no forensic evidence to connect Watts to the murders explicitly. Paul Bunton was sure Watts was his man though. He interrogated him for several hours. And according to Corey Mitchell, the author of Evil Eyes, Bunton told Watts, quote, I know what you've been up to. I can't prove it yet, but I will. End quote. Watts responded by calmly asking for his lawyer. The lack of evidence prevented police from charging him, and they were forced to let the prime suspect in a series of brutal murders walk out the door. The victims' families were left without closure, and the lives of dozens of young women were now at risk. And now for a quick break. My name is Mike Morford. Some of you may know me as co-host of the podcast Criminology. I'd like to tell you about a solo podcast that I host, which is very close to my heart. It's called The Murder of My Family. We've all heard about horrible murder cases in the news, both solved and unsolved. Most of the time, we listen for a moment and then go about our daily routine. But have you ever wondered who those murder victims were or thought about their backgrounds? They're more than a blurb in the news or a statistic. They were real people living real lives. They were someone's child, parent, sibling, or friend. In The Murder of My Family, I try to get to know those victims with the help of the people that knew them best, their family members. Together, we talk about the lives and tragic deaths of their loved ones, as well as the ripple effect the murderers had on surviving friends and family. Some of the episodes feature high-profile cases you're probably familiar with, like the Colonial Parkway murders, the Delphi murders, or the Golden State Killer murders. But many other cases are ones from small towns all over America that barely made the news. There are dozens of episodes of The Murder of My Family available right now to binge on. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the show. Detective Bunton kept Watts under surveillance following the interrogation, and shockingly, or perhaps not, the Sunday morning slasher went dormant. In spring of 1981, 
After months of police scrutiny, Coral Watts fled Michigan. April 8th, 1981. Houston detective Doug Bostock received an urgent phone call from Ann Arbor detective Paul Bunton. Bunton told him he believed a suspected serial killer named Coral Watts had relocated to the Houston area. He told him the whole story. The Detroit attacks, the Gloria Steele murder, the Ann Arbor murders, everything. In addition to mailing Houston detectives the 19-page case history on Coral Watts, Bunton warned Bostock that Watts was incredibly dangerous and almost guaranteed to keep killing young women. Detective Bostock didn't waste any time. He put Watts under surveillance and followed him for two months. Unfortunately, Watts didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He went to work, hung out at local bars, went to church, and generally acted normal. At this time, Houston experienced almost 700 murders per year. So Bostock soon moved on to other cases while performing periodic spot checks on Watts. Soon, Watts fell off the police radar. May 23, 1982, a Houston woman named Lori Lister parked her car outside of the fire station next to her apartment building and began to walk towards her residence. As she neared her door, a man came up behind her and grabbed her. He pulled her onto a neighboring patio area and demanded she tell him where she lived. Lori had a terrible choice to make. Upstairs, her roommate, Melinda, was inside the apartment. She didn't want to endanger Melinda by telling the man where they lived. But Lori also knew the man would possibly drag her into his car and kill her there if she didn't. So, she told him her apartment number, and the man choked her unconscious. Inside the apartment, Melinda heard keys in the door. Assuming it was Lori... She flipped the lock and opened the door, but a man burst in, grabbed her, and threw her to the floor. He began strangling her. Thinking quickly, Melinda played dead. The man dragged her into her bedroom and left her there while he went back outside to get the still unconscious Lori. During an interview with the television show Cold Case Files, Melinda recalled that she heard him dragging Lori up the stairs, so she knew she had to be out cold. Once inside, the man dragged Lori's unconscious body into the bathroom and started filling up the bathtub. Melinda had to do something fast. If she didn't, the man was going to kill Lori and then move on to her. Melinda got to her feet and went to the sliding door of her bedroom. They were on the second floor of their building, so the door opened to a balcony that was about 12 feet off the ground. Without thinking, she jumped as high as she could over the railing and landed on the lawn down below. She hit her head on the way down, but landed on her knees in the yard. Across the parking lot, she spotted a neighbor on her patio drinking her morning coffee, and she screamed for help. Within minutes, the police arrived and surprised the attacker, who fled 
before he could finish killing Lori. Police cornered the man in the back parking lot as he attempted to get away, and they brought him back to the crime scene. Melinda was able to identify him as the man who assaulted her and Lori. The man was Coral Watts. That's where we will conclude part one of the Sunday Morning Slasher. Stay tuned for part two, where we will dig into Coral Watts, Houston crimes, his ridiculous plea deal, his successful appeal, and the 2004 Michigan trial that was a last-ditch effort to keep this horrifying serial killer behind bars. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. <laughs>